This episode is brought to you by Core, the brand new non-custodial wallet that offers a seamless and secure experience on Avalanche. You'll hear more about Core later in the show. The word commenting that I like have terrible like. <laughs> Do you read a lot of the YouTube comments? Because I find I, them. I, I, love, I love trolls. There's people that are like they're like. This guy has no semblance, like he doesn't even know how to speak to the camera. I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm all over the place. Like I'm, I'm looking in my, like, you know what I mean? Like I'm not going to look straight. It's so Dude, weird I to look straight. I saw one who was like, like, why is Santiago the unhappiest man in crypto? This guy's never seen a smile. I'm like, what? <laughs> it's because guys come down a ton. What are, what are you talking about? Like, can't you see I'm visibly <laughs> depressed? Um, no, no. I love uh, people that's like, so I'm going to make an effort. To look straight in the literally like a psycho, just look straight in, in the camera. It's very weird. I don't yeah. know. Like, I think I'm like socially awkward. And so looking at the camera feels like I'm looking at someone in the eyes and it's like, I don't, yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I, I, I mean, I think the way that the internet goes is like the deepest trolls are on 4chan. The second deepest trolls are probably <laughs> in the depths of the YouTube comments and are definitely crypto. Like, it definitely, yeah. The yeah. two Venn diagrams are very much so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, man, it is a, yeah, the YouTube comments are a scary place. Try not to look at those. It's a tough crowd to please. So, anyways, I'm I'm still gonna do this. I don't care. So, I'm not gonna get. I'm I'll also not gonna get I'm, podcast I'm video crying. training. I'm not crying. You're Unless Blockworks wants to send me to a camp and get me a coach to do like PR <laughs> training, which I'm not there in life, then I'm okay. I'm just gonna keep doing my thing. Have you ever uh, have you ever used a business coach or like an investing coach or uh, like anything? Very like briefly, like like a Wendy in billions. Um, but briefly. And I'm a big believer, though, in therapy and self-care. Um, I think it's one of the best investments I've made. But I have usually just don't use them for business stuff. It's more like personal stuff that I wouldn't be able to talk to friends. For like, the other like stuff, what? I just use this podcast as my way to riff and, <laughs> yeah. and talk. Did you just su uh, subtly compare yourself to Bobby Axelrod, Santi? <laughs> <laughs> there is an episode where he does give one of his employees a ledger, like with like loaded yeah. with like a billion BTC. I still remember that scene, but no. yeah, or maybe maybe you're more of a uh, who's the who's the person that he hires? Taylor. Maybe you're more of a Taylor. Oh, well, man, I don't know if I should take that as a compliment or not, but... Uh, All right, we're moving on. We're moving past that. Santi, vibe check. How are we feeling about the uh, about the current markets? I'm feeling pretty hot. I'm feeling pretty good about it. Uh, I think uh, increasingly, like, I look, you always sort of look at signs of, of a bottom. Uh, there's a few that I've observed. Uh, the one that I was reading today is this... There's an index that is composed of, like, private market secondary valuations, and that has come down... To a point where it is down like 28% year to date, which is now below the NASDAQ performance. And I've always felt that like there was a time where the, not just in crypto, but like the private market valuations were still very inflated and hadn't corrected. And now they have at least, look, this index is not comprehensive, but it does track some stuff. Uh, and I think that's a very healthy barometer of like, okay, we, we probably, you know, you always look at things that need to be corrected. And this was one that I was looking at. And I think it's sort of a, a late indicator uh, and an important one for a sign that we've probably bottomed. So inflation seems to be coming down a bit. Uh, obviously, there's risks still. China that is concerning and the whole Taiwan situation that could be escalating or not. And then Europe and gas uh, prices. Uh, I mean, just like the energy prices. In, I mean, Europe's pretty much going to go into a recession, I think. So, But that doesn't necessarily concern me. I'm not a macro expert. I observe it. But no, I'm feeling pretty good in crypto. Um, there's a lot to talk about, especially this week. A lot of events since we did the last roundup. So I'm excited. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, it feels like the last part of the market that hasn't been hit hard is still the labor market, actually. Um, that's pretty... I, th I think there's still more pain to be seen in the labor market, but we've seen a lot of the extent of the actual uh, equities and crypto market pain has been, uh, I think we've seen the bottom there. I don't think we've seen the bottom in the labor market. That's mm -hmm. the probably last big thing I'm watching. Yeah. It was interesting. I think we mentioned in, in, in a prior episode, but uh, I think it was uh, Peters who said it. Um, Bitcoin was a leading indicator of risk and Bitcoin actually, and crypto generally like, topped and declined before you know all the recession concerns like this was november of last year and if you believe that to be true again like then then perhaps crypto is also going to mark the bottom and then you know i mean obviously eth and bitcoin general crypto markets up quite a bit uh since last month since the bottom and so that may be uh, a leading indicator yeah yeah um yeah i mean speaking of the, la the labor market we saw robin hood do layoffs second second round of layoffs uh we saw gemini did the same thing they laid off a couple of people uh a little bit of the workforce then they had to do bigger layoffs so robin hood they did nine percent cuts in april now they just did 23 percent. so i think you actually i think there's a second round of layoffs coming for companies that didn't dig deep enough uh maybe back in let's say june or even july in the in the june or july cuts um and so I think that's a that's a big thing I'm paying attention to. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, I don't know if you saw this. He stated that um, we need five percent unemployment for five years to get un, uh, to get inflation under control. That would be a forty percent increase in the unemployment rate. Um, so I think that's pretty interesting. I'm curious yeah. how you're um, how you're advising your are you are you seeing crypto companies like what what are you seeing from your portfolio in terms of the layoffs? Well, I thought you were going to ask me like in terms of deal flow, but uh, in terms of layoffs, not so much. Um, yeah. What I have observed is it is easier for, so a lot of the companies that I talk to just raise around certain they're in a position of strength to right. actually go out and hire. Uh, and they've found that it's a pretty interesting market because a lot of talent comes up and is available. Whereas in, yeah. you know, a year ago, it was impossible to hire like uh, competent people. It was like super expensive and competitive. Now, um, you know, a lot of folks are looking to go elsewhere and it's easier for these companies that are just raised around well capitalized to, to go out and hire like really, really good talent, which I think is, is, um, is great. Um, yeah. and so that's what I'm observing. I've also been more active. Uh, there was, <clears throat> I track like my average kind of check size. I, um, like my deployment cadence and all the number of deals and dollars at work that kind of like really took a hit over the last three months. I just wasn't seeing good deals. Um, not so much that the valuation wasn't there. I think there was a lot of these deals kind of came down quite a bit. It was just like, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't talk to that many um, teams, even though there were interesting funds rounds. I wasn't part of many. Um, <clears throat> now over the last two weeks, I've just literally committed to six new deals. Uh, one of which you actually shared with me. So I appreciate it. Um, but uh, yeah, I've seen uh, really good, kind of like a, a new wave of and crop of pretty interesting companies across the gamut of DeFi, gaming, core infrastructure. And so I'm really excited to see that. Um, and, and good to see like, you know, founders come to the space and want to continue to build. A lot of these yeah. are first time founders in crypto. We're successful outside of crypto, but are coming in and and that to me has always been um a really positive signal yeah when you do when okay so you wrote six checks in the last couple of weeks or you you plan on writing uh, mm -hmm. checks into these six companies are you doing the same size into each of these do you size it up based on conviction how do you think about uh, an angel investment i typically have a minimum check size that to me i ask for uh if i because if i don't feel that i can do that then 
to me, it just feels like I don't have enough conviction or haven't done enough work. So I try to stay disciplined at, at a minimum kind of threshold of dollars at work that I want to have. And then that's kind of based on portfolio size and a bunch of other things. Like I, I sort of think of it as if a position is, if you're not willing to make a position, like at least kind of 50 basis points or 25 basis points or 1% of your portfolio, then you're probably, you're probably like better off doing something else. So yeah. I try to kind of size it like that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's at least a minimum threshold. Uh, there are instances where I've meaningfully like increased, uh, that, uh, based on conviction. Yeah. And will you, so like, let's say, okay, so this, this, uh, the company that I introduce you to, I, mm-hmm. um, when you look at something like that, uh, it sounds, it sounds like you're doing it by the way. Um, but when, when you look at something like that, are you saying like, okay, the min, maybe I'll allocate my normal check size, but I have a lowest allocation that I'm comfortable with. If they can't give me the minimum check size I'm comfortable with, it's just not worth it for my time. Uh, and, and, and what is that? How do you calculate that minimum? Is it 0.25% of your, uh, 25 bips of your total portfolio of your angel mm-hmm. portfolio? How do you think about that? Yeah, look, sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes I really come across, I come across founders, um, that are kind of exceptional that I really want to work with. And I align myself like philosophically and I, I like, I'm not hard and fast. Um, I, I obviously try to push for a minimum, but if I can't get it, like in this case, super late in the process, he's just making it like squeezing me in. And so, um, I'll be very vocal about trying to get the minimum, but if I can't, then at that point it's like, do I really want to work with this person? And, um, you know, um, I want to be a part of that journey. And so I kind of like, yeah, on certain exceptions, there are certain exceptions where I just say, look, this is a team that I really like and I want to be a part of this story and and I'm fine. Like just getting whatever I can get. Yeah. How do you think about the opportunity cost of doing these angel deals? So Hmm. company we invested in, I think it's going to be big company, but there's like, but I also think ETH is going to go up a lot. We've got the merge coming up, right? So it's like the opportunity cost of doing these angel deals that are illiquid too, where like maybe there's not a token coming. Uh, it's just, incre- I feel like it's higher than ever right now. Yeah, it's a great question because it's really hard to outperform ETH in the long term. Like yeah. very, very hard. Um, I guess like not all my portfolio is invested in, in, in privates. A lot of it is illiquid. A lot of it is in early stage stuff. I just like it. Uh, I, 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 yeah. I feel like that's where I enjoy the most working with teams. Uh, but you're right. It's You have to believe that this, whatever company you're, or team you're backing will outperform. Factoring in, like applying some sort of illiquidity discount, right? Of 20, 30%, however much you want to do it. And some sort of, sort of hurdle. If you think ETH is going to do 2X, hypothetically speaking, and none of this financial advice, but hypothetically, if you think ETH is going to do a 2X or a 3X, then you have to clear that hurdle over whatever time horizon and be willing to take liquidity. And so you apply a further discount attached to that. And so if after doing all that math, you come out and say, okay, I will outperform, then then that's it, right? Uh, And the other thing that you... obviously need to think about is look a lot of times the biggest mistakes I've made and observed other folks do is like you spend 90% of your time building a thesis, doing research, talking to the team. And, and at the very end, you think about allocation and portfolio construction. And that's where most of the mistakes I've made are based where I had faulty portfolio construction, meaning I was too weighted on liquid or illiquid. Um, I didn't really think much about that. It was a great investment, but it wasn't sized big enough. So it didn't really move the needle. And look, if you think like, if I look at my portfolio historically, there have been 
there've been out of all the winners, I think from a absolute return dollar wise, it's been only a handful that have really meaningfully drove that outperformance. And there were certainly times where it was a great bet. It wasn't sized correctly. And I think as an investor, I always, I always like to think, look, the odds of me continuing to perform X really go down. Like this sort of mean reversion is, is very true. Uh, and unfortunately a lot of people in crypto are conditioned to think that a five X is like a, it's like a terrible return. It's like, guys, <laughs> that, that kind of thinking is very destructive. Uh, because like, if you continue to do a five X, you'll literally be the best investor of all time, the history of the world. Like it, it, that's just <laughs> not going to be the case. And so, um, so anyways, yeah, what I'm trying to say is portfolio construction is equally as important, uh, as, as doing the work and doing the research, like on the particular company. Um, and so, so yeah, look, it's an evolving kind of criteria and process. I, I um, it really depends on market conditions. And, you know, for a while, for instance, over the last like nine months, you probably saw better R&R, uh, sorry, pr- better probably risk-adjusted returns on ETH than a lot of private deals that were being funded at like north of 100 million with like no product. Yeah, yeah. I am starting to get, I heard um, the co-founder of HubSpot talking about his angel investments and you know, the guy's worth probably hundreds of millions or actually probably at this point, maybe over a billion at this point, he's done a uh, hundred plus angel deals. He'll write big check sizes. He'll write 250 K check. He'll write million dollar angel checks. And his take on angel investing is um, it's actually, you probably will outperform it in crypto in the public markets. Um, you'll probably outperform your angel investments. Most people will. Uh, outperform in the public markets just by b- buying ETH or something like that, or buying a couple of uh, concentrated tokens that you that you really really like. Uh, but the angel side of things, if you're a founder and you like to build, there's like no better feeling than sitting down with these founders that you've uh, invested in early and helping them mm-hmm. out. And also, candidly, there's like a flex as he talks about. You know, he's like, I invested. I was like one of the first checks into Coinbase. <laughs> like, yeah. that's a I made a lot of money, but like that's a flex that goes yeah. on the. That goes on the that, resume, you know. It, it, that's absolutely right. I mean, sometimes yeah. it is about that network and it is about that kind of insight that you can get by talking and being close to founders and teams building. Um, you know, for instance, you might you might have angeled into, say, a gaming deal. Not Axie. Maybe it was one that wasn't as successful or not successful at all. But by virtue of you making that investment, perhaps you learned so much about the Web3 gaming space. What was right? What went wrong? why it didn't take off, why the game, like in-game economy is broken. That insight, had you not invested in this particular company, hypothetically, you may, that, that learning you may have never have gotten. And so a lot of times I think, okay, if I want to get smarter on a category, I'm going to deploy X dollars of work. Say, I, uh, I want to learn about, you know, zero knowledge proofs. Well, of course the universe is smaller, but maybe that's not a good example. So say I want to learn about gaming, right? And so I go out and invest in five different companies, 10 different companies. I will deploy kind of 25K checks hypothetically into all of these. And so, okay, you're, you're putting $250,000 of work to learn about a category that you think is going to be massive. So you, you have to believe the category is going to be huge to warrant this kind of investment as a percentage of your portfolio, whatever that sum is. And it could be deployed into public or private companies, right? Because uh, a lot of folks might be listening, wait a minute, um, I don't have access to 10 private companies. Well, it's fine. But in crypto, the beauty is there's all these projects and Discord channels you can join, right? And so you can go out and for all intents and purposes, every crypto investor right now, whether it's a token or not, 
is a venture capitalist, is an angel investor, because these are super early stage projects with liquidity. And so anyways, what I'm trying to say is sometimes you're right. You want to get smart in the category and there's, it's kind of unrealistic to assume that you're going to really pay attention to a, something if you don't have skin in the game. And so, or, and, and the learnings that you can get from being really close to founders, not just investing privately, but also like just buying the token, whatever, and then joining the discord because founders are really accessible in crypto and that gets you ultimately smarter about a category. And so, um, I've always found, you know, so Naval kind of said it best. I think there was a old tweet from him that said, look, as an angel, you kind of have to assume and be comfortable with losing like all of your principle. Um, understanding that like there might be like one or two really asymmetric uh, outcomes, but even if you lose everything, it would have been worthwhile to learn yeah. and to get access to, to these yeah. founders that are really, really smart. Yeah. I want to get your take on uh, ETH merge and just... Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and actually Bitcoin uh, for, the, for the second half of the year. And then we can jump into some of the news of the week. What is your current allocation, uh, Bitcoin to ETH allocation? Uh, nine to one. ETH to Bitcoin. ETH to Bitcoin. To Bitcoin. Yeah. I just see a very clean, compelling narrative um, and catalyst for Ethereum. And... And I think the merge is understood, but not necessarily kind of priced in, I think. Uh, and don't ask me why. I just I just have a feeling like I, I think that a lot of institutions like kind of understand it. But look, the merge has been kind of talked about for so many years. And, you know, every time there's like some commentary from the devs, Tim or whoever, about a potential delay, a lot of people are like, here we go again. This has been delayed for years. I think most people still are discounting the fact that it's actually going to go through. Um, but I think the setup for, and this is for anyone listening here, there was a great episode that we had with Trav. Trav, Travis. Yeah, Travis. Um, go listen to that because I think that really yeah. covers it well. Uh, and I believe in most of what is discussed there. Um, look, it's not to say that I'm, I don't believe in Bitcoin. I don't, it's just to me, I always think of, okay, what's the catalyst? Uh, and there's a very compelling, strong catalyst for Ethereum. Um, that I don't think is wholly properly understood by kind of the majority of the market participants out there. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Do you think, um, do you think it's like a Bitcoin having event where, uh, maybe like the price doesn't actually move that much, uh, post having, but maybe like a year, usually at the having, like the price doesn't rip it at the having it's like, maybe it takes six or nine or 12 yeah, months, it's like three, six months after. Right. Yeah. 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 You yeah. think we like What's rip interesting into is like a lot of people, a lot of people, there's always this idea that like Bitcoin happenings, this one, it's like the next Bitcoin happening will be priced in. And historically it hasn't, right? It's you you never, still have yeah, this phenomenon. Um, yeah. Other correlation you think, causation. Like, like tell me, tell me the price action of ETH here. Do you think we, um, oh, we, maybe it's like buy the rumor, sell the news. It's like, we kind of rip into the merge, it sells off. And then we kind of consolidate around for several months and that, and then it, and then the merge gets priced in. What well, I mean. Uh, it's like taking out a crystal ball because I have no idea. I think you become less of a gambler and more of a speculator if you have a longer than one year time horizon. Um, so whatever Ethereum does in the near term likely will be correlated, likely will kind of trail if we're continue to be in this macro uncertainty backdrop. Then I think the merge is, while very interesting catalyst, will take a backseat 
and macro yeah. macro still is front seat in a lot of markets they're still jittery they still trade around you know whether pelosi's going to taiwan or you know gas prices and whatever happens in europe and so i think there's earnings season people are still looking at that and then everything else kind of moves according to that which it means if you're a patient long-term investor it's kind of a great setup when you think about it because you know this is coming whether market participants want to pay attention to it they're probably going to be really distracted for the rest of the year and so I always like to think of these moments as like you're never I, you, you can never really play a short game because you you're really going to get you're really going to get carried away yeah. right and that's where you really mess up but if you say look the merge has been something that is going to be very net positive for ethereum long term it will further credentialize the fact that this is a network that can upgrade that can execute on the roadmap that has been discussed for a long time and it's a very interesting from an ESG narrative um you know perspective um and then you know, I think I think if you see that, then you kind of observe and cost average. Like what I would do, what I'm doing is, I always kind of like build conviction, and accordingly allocate. It's not that I'm doing it all all at once, um, and and I feel good about these entry points over a two, three, four, or five year horizon. Like I don't know. Like I, I, I hopefully folks listening here like. I'm never in a position like, you know, do when I, when I do liquid stuff and I try not to do as much because I know I'm terrible at timing it. And we can talk about like, even someone like Kathy Wood, super sophisticated, I think has one of the best <laughs> research shops in, out there has been really right about calling certain like macro technological trends, whether it's Tesla and, uh, you know, batteries and electric vehicles and, or genetics um, and like stuff like CRISPR and, and certainly crypto. She punched out a Coinbase literally on the 27th of July and Coinbase is up almost hundred percent. Like, so like, yeah, you never, I, anyways, I know what, uh, 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 an amazing hedge fund, uh, that I know that's very, uh, they're quite successful. They texted me a week ago and said, we're, we're putting on a big short on Coinbase. Oh. Like, what are you guys doing? They're like, we're putting on a big short on Coinbase. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. It's already down a lot. They're like, no, we got, it. it's Absolutely. like, it was right after the uh, the NFT video that they launched, the Board Ape video. They're like, "This is oh, ridiculous!" Yeah. Like they're clearly wasting so much money. Um, put on a big short, and uh, yeah, even the best even the best traders have no idea what's happening in the short term. I will say, I am getting very <laughs> bullish on things right now. I had two conversations that have made this week that have made me rethink what this bear market will look like. Um, I've previously been thinking that this is going to be a long and maybe a deep bear market again. I had um, we had two conversations with one, one of the biggest market makers uh, in the world, and then B, uh, the second one was uh, the head of crypto at one of the largest uh, financial institutions in the world. They are both pushing uh, deeper into crypto right now. They are not backing off. They're both doubling down, and I was really surprised to hear that. And even when you kind of push at them a little and and, and probe and, and and see if they're actually doing that, they are leaning into the merge and they're really excited internally. And that made me think that, you know, it's only two conversations. It's completely anecdotal, but that made me think that this bear market might be a little more shallow, uh, a little less intense than I originally thought. Yeah. Um, hope that's the case. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, the institutions <laughs> are coming has been a narrative that has been ongoing in crypto <laughs> and we're still here, but uh, you're right. I mean, uh, I do sense a lot of the discussions yeah. I've had over the last two years are are smart investors that haven't allocated to crypto that see the merge and are tracking it and have done a lot of work over the last couple of years to understand 
the implications that that has on the Ethereum network. So I think people yeah. are ready to, to, to execute on it. And a lot of them might just be kind of waiting for this to, to go live, to, to really go back to their investment committee and say, okay, it's here. Let's go. Yeah. Speaking of institutions, I forgot to plug our conference the last three weeks and our team keeps getting really pissed at me. Uh, we are hosting Digital Asset Summit September 13th and 14th. We have a competition going on internally, Santi. Okay. Uh, whoever drives the most tickets using their discount code gets a free dinner. Hmm. And I want that free dinner. So you can use Yano250 to get 250 bucks off. There's the plug. Uh, now, no, no one this can get mad at me. This is in uh, New York or London? Because you do both. This is New York. It's re it's actually really interesting what we've put together. So like permissionless, like very crypto native event. Uh, DAS, we have put together an event that kind of combines the macro with the crypto. So we have folks like Rob Leshner and like Amy Wu at FTX and Mickey at, uh, at Paradigm and Antonio, uh, the founder of DYDX. But then we also have... Jurian Timmerer, the head of macro at Fidelity, with Brent Johnson, Danielle DiMartino Booth, Mark Yusko, mm. um, uh, re like a really, really, really interesting uh, macro crowd. And so mm -hmm. it's like I don't think there's ever been an event that puts you know Mike Green and Brent Johnson and Danielle DiMartino Booth on the same stage as like Michael Shaulov and Rebecca Reddig and Danielle DiMartino uh, and, uh, and and Rob Leshner mm -hmm. and like some of these deep crypto folks. So I think it'll be a really interesting event, actually. Nice. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Yeah, it should be good. Maybe you'll uh maybe I'll show this time. Oh. Uh maybe the London <laughs> one. Or, or yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, uh, I won't make any promises given how constrained <laughs> air traffic is these days in travel, but uh certainly I'm messing with I think you. a lot I'm of the tourism with... flow is going the other way, which is Americans trying to go to Europe because the Euro is kind of really low. But nonetheless, we can be yeah, contrary. That's true. All right. All right. Now that the plug is out of the way, we can talk about the hacks. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Let's, let's definitely talk about the, the Solana hype. Yeah. You want to start with Solana, you said? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, let's start with Solana. We'll also talk about Nomad. I will say people are calling this the Solana hack. I think it should really be called the slope failure. Um, yes. Uh, this was, uh, you know, a lot of people are t saying this is the Solana hack. Really? Here, so, here, so here's what happened. On Wednesday morning, there was, uh, fear started to spread through the Solana ecosystem. Thousands of users started reporting that their wallets were drained without any approval. I think the final number is that over 7,000, I think it was like 77 or 7,800 wallets 8, were hit by... Yeah, we're hit by hackers. Now, it's a relatively small number, like out of 25 million. There are about 25 million users on the Solana network or wallets. So it's 7,000 or 8,000 out of 25 million. But still, that's 7,700 more than should happen. About $5 million were drained. So we'll talk about the Nomad hack. Nomad was 190 million. This was only 5 million. Uh, uh, Anatoly, the CEO of Solana Labs, said it looked like a supply chain attack on iOS-based wallets. What a supply chain attack is, for those who don't know, uh, supply chain attacks happen when a hacker basically enters and modifies software by injecting malicious code in a system. The code inserts can be employed to deliver a malicious payload or backdoor malware. In Solana's case, as what Anatoly said is that it's possible that a hacker attacked the iOS wallet libraries to extract private keys. Um, I think uh, what ended up coming out today or yesterday is that... Um, uh, what 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 really happened there is that um, this was not a Solana protocol failure, but it was actually connected to Slope, which is a Solana-based wallet. Uh, Slope stores their users. I think this is either a theory or maybe it's been confirmed, but Slope stores their user seed phrases in plain text on servers. So what they do is like, so you've got the wallet app. They were sending user seed phrases to a centralized server um, that could then be 
read, like the, the phrases were not encrypted. So anybody with access to the specific mm -hmm. server uh, could potentially access users' private keys. Um, and I think this really, I mean, that is a low security standard. It actually makes me concerned of like, I know this is a low security standard. I bet other folks are doing this though. The low security standard probably led to the breach, which gave hackers the ability to acquire the seed phrases mm -hmm. uh, and drain funds. So yeah. that's the overview. That's a great overview. I woke up and I was monitoring this like like crazy because for a while, I, I you didn't know what was really going on. There were most of the users were Solana, but there was a few like Ethereum wallets. There's some ETH ones. There was some yeah. Ethereum ones too. And so you started then, I think there were some really good folks that you should go out and follow when all this goes goes on. Samsung, obviously, he was not as vocal in this time. He was very vocal in Nomad. Um, Adam, what's his name? Korshwin. Um, he was tracking this a lot. I think he talked to a lot of users that had their wallets drained to understand kind of the the profile of the user that it that was being exploited. Uh, and, you know, over the ensuing kind of like 12 to 16 hours, they very quickly said, okay, everyone here has like used Slope um, and or imported their private key into Slope. Uh, and so that kind of like, it was great to see the, the developer community come together to kind of get to the bottom of it. Um, not so great seeing folks really jump the gun quickly and dunk on something like Solana say, oh, here we go. You know, this is why Solana's crap, you know? And, and I think that you, I pay attention to the kind of folks that do that uh, because, yeah. you know, it's, it, 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 look, at the end of the day, like we'll talk about Nomad in a second, but from a sheer magnitude, dollars that have been like lost, I mean, Nomad was, orders of magnitude higher. Um, and so, and that was just like solidity code, like the uh, issue. Um, and so, yeah, look, I mean, I think I, I take this opportunity to tell users like the most important thing, the takeaway when you see these kind of incidents, hopefully no one was affected, um, it, are two things. One, get a hardware wallet. D just don't trade convenience for security. Like security is paramount. Um, and I don't care what anyone says, just go get a hardware wallet. If you're, if you have more than a hundred dollars at work in crypto, go get a hardware wallet. It costs like 50, 60 bucks. You'll understand about security. You, you'll, it's, it's not easy to, to use, but take it as a learning. Like, it's not like super intuitive at first, but then it becomes very easy once you get the hang of it. And I think it's a very worthwhile time and money investment to understand security. Like if you're bullish on crypto. And you really want to start allocating your time and attention and energy and money. Like, trust me, it will pay off. Like, it will pay dividends just having a hardware wallet. Get one, two, three, ten. I don't care. Um, related to this, there's a few accounts that I think we should link here in the notes that I think provide really good security, like best practices. Um, the founder of, what is it, My Crypto? Um, I'll, we'll put together some stuff. Yeah, Tay, Tay. Tay did something. Bob, Bobby, uh, Bobby Ong at CoinGecko yeah. did something. Tay is one of the more like very outspoken, like will not hold back what she thinks and provides really comprehensive threads about security. And I recommend following her. Um, and so anyways, um, that was, uh, I, I'm glad that we got to the bottom of, of this pretty quickly because uh, it could have been way worse. And it wasn't. It wasn't a Solana failure. It wasn't. It was just simply devs not being very cautious and like adopting terrible practices and copying libraries and not really understanding what they're doing. Yeah. So this was a, um, uh, this was a 
private key. So the private keys were compromised here, right? This was not like a phishing scam. This was not like malicious approval and no. smart contracts. This was just a, a private key compromise through these centralized servers. Um, yeah, like when you generate a key with Slope or you yeah. import a, a key, a private key through Slope, they were just like storing that in plain text. Like for, I mean, it's just like there, right. if there's one thing that you need to do <laughs> as a wallet, like seriously, is like make yeah. sure that whatever you do, you just don't store in, in, in a third party. Like this is the most important or, thing. Or even if you do store in a third party, which you really shouldn't be doing, uh, they have to be encrypted. They have, yeah. There has to be some sort of encryption there. I think they're just storing them yeah. in plain text. Yeah, th this is, is like the, the, the very top of the things that you need to do as a wallet developer like and be focused on is not doing yeah. this. And they did that. So it was also like pretty disappointing to see their statement. Like their postmortem was like, it, 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 it wasn't sufficiently clear to users that they should if they had created an account to create a new private key outside of slope and migrate their assets immediately. Like yeah. it, this should have been in plain red text and it was not. And I understand they might be like worried about being sued, which they probably will. Um, but still like, God damn it guys, like protect your users. Like what are you guys doing? So anyways, yeah. it, it, this is like gross negligence in my mind. Like, um, you know, it's okay. Look, as a developer, you're going to, there are things that you may, there are other hacks where like so, some of the stuff, the surface area is pretty complex. If you're, if you're doing a bridge, like bridges are very hard. And in this case, I just think like whatever it is, just own up to it and protect users. Like make sure that you mitigate and contain it as soon as possible. Um, and communicating to users, uh, clearly and allowing them to kind of take the necessary steps to protect themselves is paramount. And I didn't see that in the press release, candidly. It was, it was like yeah. very underwhelming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I've a, I've a, maybe a second order impact. I think this is, um, this feels like pretty bullish for Solana actually. I don't, I don't know. Like there's, there's a crazy amount of adversity that Solana has gone through, um, recently. And it's like, you've got these, like, I feel like a lot of it, like wormhole, you've got like these bridge hacks and deep, like the DeFi app hacks and wallet hacks. You had like a lot of performance issues. You had like stability issues. The network kept going down. You have these like decentralization narratives about how the network's not decentralized. You have all these other L1s like Aptos and Sui arising. A lot of attention being uh, uh, on like Cosmos right now and things like that. It's a non-EVM ecosystem. But, you know, I'm looking at the price right now. It is still, it it is still hovering around 40 bucks like for the last three months. No, two months. Uh, this thing is like, refuses to go below 35 i mean maybe sam's just got like a fat finger bid sitting at 35 but uh mm -hmm. yeah it's pretty interesting that it hasn't gone down more yeah there's a very interesting tweet from raj one of the co-founders of solana it says like this further solidifies the case to have a solana based phone um and i'm not an expert on like hardware like on secure mm -hmm. enclaves or whatever but like the idea anatoly had a tweet uh, and we should bring him on to really talk about the solana phone because i think it would be interesting. he's coming on users. he's coming on it's um cool. because a lot of this might just like if you think about okay going forward like how can we really mitigate these type of things um in some capacity it's um just the hardware device and what you could do if you're interacting on mobile and so i think it sets us up for an interesting discussion around the solana phone and why it's actually necessary um and i think this hack further kind of um supports that thesis all right folks this episode is brought to you by our friends at avalanche and ava labs they have just dropped a new crypto wallet called core you're going to be hearing a lot about it over the coming months you can now be one of the first to try it out 
Here's the reason I'm excited to partner with them on Empire. Right now, crypto wallets and browser extensions, they feel clunky, they feel non-intuitive. That's why Ava Labs built Core. It's a free, non-custodial browser extension that gives Avalanche users a seamless and secure Web3 experience across the entire Avalanche ecosystem. Here are a few reasons to try Core. Here's what I'm experimenting with. Number one, Core has intuitive dashboards with a unified display for all of your NFT collections, all your crypto assets. You can execute asset swaps directly inside the wallet. It's a really nice experience. Uh, maybe you want to earn yield or borrow against your Bitcoin, uh, but you don't want to do it on one of those C5 platforms right now. Core's native bridging functionality makes it really easy to bridge your Bitcoin to Avalanche's robust DeFi ecosystem. Last but not least, Core makes on-ramping super easy. You can convert dollars to crypto right now using the MoonPay integration. Just takes a few clicks. Download Core today using the link in the show notes. It's really, really nice. Uh, if you are interested in the Avalanche ecosystem at all, you have to be using Core. Download Core using the link below. Now, let's get back to the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, should we talk about Nomad? Yeah. Um, all right, so let me. I'll do my best to try to explain this, but jump in, jump in where I'm missing things. So Nomad is um, Nomad is a bridge. Uh, Nomad is kind of the bridge for like EVMOs, Moonbeam, uh, Milkometa, which I don't even know what Milkometa is, but maybe I should. Uh, they were hacked on Monday for over 190 million dollars. Uh, basically, they their cross chain bridge um, that supports token transfers across like ETH. Uh, Moonbeam, Avalanche. Uh, they raised, I think it was 22 million bucks earlier this year uh, from folks like OpenSea, Coinbase, some other corporates, and also some crypto native VCs. Um, what happened with Nomad, and I'll try to do my best here, uh, but again, fill in the gaps, is there was a previous protocol upgrade led to a vulnerability that basically enabled hackers to withdraw an unlimited amount of funds from the bridge. So after this hacker realized this and initiated these large transfers, uh, I think it was like 300 other users copy pasted those transaction scripts, replaced the receiver address with their own, uh, and, and basically started to exploit it as well. So, uh, this was, I think a smart contract exploit. I think it was Samson explained it like this. I can just quote him cause he broke it down way better than I ever could. Um, the bug came from the developers erroneously modifying the bridges, smart contract and deploying, uh, the code without proper audit, the nomad bridge hack. Oh, this is the important part. The nomad bridge hack is made possible due to an improper initialization leading to the zero address. So zero X zero zero being marked as a trusted route, which led to every message being proven valid by default. So basically what this means is that, uh, marking it as zero X zero zero also called a zero address, uh, accidentally turned off a smart contract check that ensured that withdrawals were made to valid addresses only. So after it was turned off, you could essentially, anyone could withdraw fr uh, funds from the bridge if they wanted. So this, it's interesting, like this is a lot of money, 190 million. The exploit didn't require any like advanced technical knowledge of smart contracts or anything like that. All you had to do was basically just edit the hacker's transaction with Etherscan, replace the destination address with your own address, and then make the withdrawal request from the Nomad bridge. Um, yeah, I mean, no, it's, it's, uh, when you, when you put it like that, it's like, no wonder that there's this feeding frenzy mm -hmm. of, uh, of hundreds of bad actors here who pulled a total, total of 190 million out. There were some folks that were white hacking this. So like they, they, they saw this and then they like quickly use the same, um, transaction, modify the, the withdrawal address and then kind of right. try to 
you know, do that to, to safeguard funds and then re- some of them. That was only, been- that was only nine. I, so that they did like they did do that. They're white hat, had hackers, but it was yeah. only 9 million. So yeah, what, so what far. That, 5%? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah I, I agree. Um, third yeah, biggest I think hack the, of the year, right? What was that? Third biggest hack of the year. I think Ronin was 625. Mm-hmm. Wormhole was 325 or 326. Um, I guess Harmony Bridge was, was a hundred million. Um, there was the, I mean, the poly network was 611, yeah. but that was, that was different. Yeah. I want to, so. I want to, before we move away from these hacks, I, I found an interesting use case for NFTs, uh, in the Solana, um, in the, what is it? The, uh, uh, I don't want to call it the Solana hack, but nonetheless, the, the, what is it? The sledge. We should edit the slope. Slope, slope. slope. I found an interesting use case um, for NFTs related to the slope hack, which was this: there was a fo- there was a person that sent an NFT that was hosted on a pri- like an, on a specific domain to the hacker wallet, and was waiting for them to open the NFT, and then that would like would that would reveal the IP address. Mm-hmm. presumably of the hacker of course if you could if you were monitoring the address and you open it up in your computer it would have like it's not the hacker but it's an interesting way to like triangulate around ip addresses behind a wallet um with nfts and i think this is in large part why I'll, you get a lot of these kind of spam nfts sent to your wallet uh, that you don't see in OpenSea. um but um but also going forward you can envision like traditional companies imagine saying hey i want to understand where most of the board apes are and if you're a high-end business in new york all of a sudden you understand which wallet like like you can retarget these people and so at the end of the day nfts are the cookies of web3 and uh i guess it's important to use a vpn all the time uh if you care about like you know just folks not like trying to understand your where you're based yeah, NFTs are the cookies of Web three. I completely agree with that. I think what will end up happening is is not just around IPs, but actually, um, just like movement of capital on chain. So, yeah. like, let, let's uh, let's say someone goes through an onboarding solution like a MoonPay or like Kado or something like that. What one of those folks could do is like drop an NFT, basically, uh, could like give an NFT to that user once they once they onboard, um. And they can essentially, I think what they could, what they could do is they could keep, I mean, one, once you're basically onboarded through one of those folks, they can see your movement of capital essentially forever, unless you put it through like a tornado or something like that, they could keep dropping NFTs into your wallet. Once you like, let's say they see that you've made like 50 transactions inside the Solana ecosystem, they partner with Solana and they drop you like a Solana 50 activity nft and then other folks in other folks can be like oh who owns that nft let me let me target you uh and i think this ends up leading into a web3 crm that oh i mean 100 so imagine this pick whatever event that you go say you went to a stadium or a music concert and in that event you can you know middle of the event is a scan this qr code potentially to win a sweepstake or whatever you scan the code you get an nft of proof of attendance if you will if you're smart, maybe you just want to use a burner wallet, you know, or whatever. Say a subset of users just uses their 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 only wallet, um, and then all of a sudden, that event organizer, artist, sports company, whatever, now has really interesting data on who yeah. attended, um, and and what the preferences are, what kind of NFTs are buying. Of course, now it's like you know you could. You know, you can infer so many things just now. Imagine we have limited time 
of a lot of these users, but really rich data. And at the end of the day, blockchains are data rich. And so imagine yeah. how much more data is going to exponentially rise over the next 10 years of users that just may have one or two wallets or wallets that can be easily linked through stuff like chain analysis. And look, for a lot of yeah. people are out there, it's like, oh my God, this is like Panopticon. This is like Big Brother. Like, this is what you don't want to hear, but it's just a reality, right? And so again, yeah. privacy is one of the things that is important uh, in crypto, but NFTs make it make it hard. Yeah. Here's a product request. If there are any entrepreneurs listening to this is, so when we launched Permies, we launched Permies, 555 uh, NFTs that basically got you access to permissionless uh, and a whole bunch and our research platform and a whole bunch of other stuff. I really, I manually would go in and look at the address of the people who had bought the Permies and it tells you really interesting things. You're like, oh, okay, this permi whale is also like a doodles whale. So it turns out like we had a lot of folks who hold doodles who also hold permies. We had a lot of like board ape folks who also held permies. Hmm. We had a, and, and, and it gives you some really interesting insight because it's like, okay, if you can see that, uh, let's say, you know, um, I don't know, moonbirds holders, there's a massive crossover uh, between like moonbirds and permies. Well, then you can do a collab. That tells us mm -hmm. or our marketing team that we should then do a collab with Moonbirds, right? Or let's say we see that the Permies holders, there are like no whales, right? Maybe there's just like a bunch of like really, really, really small. Uh, each person has like less than a thousand or like one ETH in their account or something like that. Like you want to market to those folks very differently and talk to those folks mm -hmm. very differently than if everyone who holds a Permi has like 50 ETH, for mm -hmm. example. So anyone who can like, I, I think this is a, I think this is a huge platform i think this web3 crm is will will be really really big yeah. and feel free to answer this question or not but you look at this data did you go back to like some of the sponsors or organize and say hey listen the average transaction value of the people attending permissionless is x and so you better give me a discount on y or something like that i mean this will we, brand, should, we didn't we didn't but we should have maybe <laughs> you should just hire me to run your growth hacking no, i'm kidding <laughs> web3 growth hacking uh, um look i'll, I'll Every time I tweet about this, there are very vocal people that say, God, this is not why we design Web3. Like, this is this is terrible. This is the police state, big brother. I'm like, guys, it's just, it's just a reality, whether you want to see it or not, and whether you want to be cautious or not and take precautions. That's up to you, right? Bridges, you want to talk uh, Synapse? I want to talk Synapse Chain, which I think was a pretty interesting announcement. I don't know if you saw that. Here, let me get... Maybe it's uh, helpful to have a quick primer on bridges. So basically bridges are, uh, bridges move assets uh, between chains. So like if I want to move some capital from like Solana into Ethereum, that's technically really, really challenging. So I need a bridge to do that. Bridges can be classified into trustless bridges and trusted bridges, right? So uh, the the latter means that the bridge relies on a centralized entity to function. The former means that the bridge relies on smart contracts. So for trusted uh, bridges, users need to trust the security and good faith reputation of these centralized custodians. The risks are centralized entities going rogue and kind of this incompetent security management, which uh, we're, we're seeing play out with some of this stuff like Slope. Tr for trustless bridges, users need to trust the security of the underlying blockchain and the smart contracts written on top to uh, enable the functionalities of the bridge. The risks are like badly written code, social engineering, or new vector attacks that were previously overlooked. So that's, um, I think bridges will end up, I think bridges are a really, really, really crucial aspect of crypto as everything goes, goes multi-chain. They're also clearly the hardest thing to build technically. We've had over a billion dollars in bridging hacks. Um, 
But I, th and I, I think maybe one of the problems is that users actually shouldn't be interacting with bridges. I feel like bridges should just be like completely behind the scenes. Nobody ever knows that they're using a bridge. Um, I, f I feel like that's where the future of bridges go. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's pretty hard from a very high, at a very high level, you have two different networks, um, blockchains, if you will, um, that have different security levels, levels of security. And the bridge is essentially connecting these two, trying to get some finality on the transfer, the state transition of one, like if you're moving one asset or messaging or whatever, generally that is recorded in the blockchain and one on one side to the other through the bridge, then that needs to be balanced, recorded on both sides, both my, which have different levels of security and finality and, and, and both from a time perspective and quality of like of the security itself. And so the bridge is kind of a lot of need to figure all that out, which is very complex. And, and so sometimes require like a trusted, like a system of, of relayers, if you will, in the bridge that are doing this and taking some risk and being compensated for that. Um, and, and so yeah. that's kind of like, it's probably, as you said, which I would agree, it's one of the more complex things um, in in crypto, at least now, because it has a lot of surface area, meaning like there's a lot of different kind of components that need to work. Um, and it requires a lot of, I think they're, they're kind of like bridges and zero knowledge proofs are heavily researched, um, but like I would characterize as one of the more kind of ambitious on the roadmap of things in cryptography that need to be figured out. And so, uh, but, but to your point, I think both are, are kind of will work at some point or are critical for the functioning yeah. of where at least I see, and I think you see crypto evolving, which is it's a multi-chain world and one that allows for massive scalability through zero knowledge proofs and multi-chain through bridges. Yeah. Um, there's an interesting bridge announcement last, no, was it this week? Earlier this week uh, with Synapse, right? Synapse is, is uh, launching their, I don't know, I don't know you call it. L1 maybe or smart contract ecosystem. I don't mm -hmm. know. Basically, uh, Synapse is, is one of the biggest bridges, right? So they're a cross-chain uh, protocol that is best known for the bridge. They have a Synapse bridge. They also have um, uh, the, the, the bridge consists of the Synapse network and the Synapse cross-chain AMM. Um, they're one of the market leaders right now. So they have weekly volume around like 20 million, I think. It's on par with like Wormhole, which is around 25 million. It's ahead of other bridges like Hop or Stargate. Um, Synapse, for folks who have been around for a while, uh, probably remember them as Nerve. They started as a stable swap AMM on the Binance Smart Chain, which just goes to show you how much folks can pivot. Um, and they really started as like a gateway for moving assets between ETH and Binance Smart Chain. Anyways, why are we talking about Synapse? They are one of the most popular bridges. They were they uh, they revealed earlier this week or end of last week that they're going to be one of the first, maybe the first bridging protocol to actually develop their own smart contract platform. So they're calling it Synapse Chain. Um, and I don't know. I, th I think it's a I think it's a pretty interesting conversation around. Uh, one of the main problems that many teams building cross-chain applications are facing today is the lack of a single execution environment. Mm -hmm. So instead what they have to do is they have to deploy smart contracts on like several different chains. This ends up increasing security risks, communication barriers, development needs, et cetera. Uh, unlike those existing systems and how things are built today with Synapse's uh, chain, the way I understand it today is it's uh, it enables developers to build a cross-chain smart contract exclusively on the Synapse chain. So you can basically build, uh, apps can get built on the Synapse chain. They can then execute that logic across any blockchain 
uh, and then the finality happens on Ethereum. So mm-hmm. I think it's pretty interesting. Um, yep. It's compatible with right EVM. Uh, it enables any existing app to be deployed on Synapse Chain. Gives developers a similar building experience to like any other EVM chain, but allows you to build uh, a cross-chain application. I think mm-hmm. it's. I yeah, think it's a good one. They actually reached out to me last week, and we can get them on the yeah. plane. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we had um. The, the biggest competitor to this is probably Layer Zero. Uh, we had Brian on mm-hmm. the podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, I th- the way I understand Layer Zero is this is a very direct competitor to it. Um, mm-hmm. Layer Zero raised what they raised at a $3 billion valuation, a bunch of money, obviously a very hot project. Um, I think Layer Zero competes directly with this. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, interesting. Yeah. I will say uh, Synapse, Blockworks Research had the alpha. I have to plug this. We wrote a, we wrote a piece on this saying um, Synapse was going to be doing this. We wrote it July 14th uh, and recommended that the Synapse, that like Syn is maybe interesting as Synapse uh, ends up launching their chain. And so, um, mm-hmm. yeah, we had the alpha two weeks two weeks before it was live and Synapse token did pop 50% on the day it announced. So how, how many, big plug. How, how many uh, as an aside, how many guys do you have on your research team? We have a... Um, Eight person research team now. Okay. Uh, seven person. And they have like team. any like full liberty to go out and research whatever they want. Or, uh, they, or so there's like no, a director. Or whatever. No, actually, there. So each analyst, the way that we've set up, set everything up is there's uh, each analyst has covers only like two or three different protocols. Um, and so instead of like we think other maybe research folks in crypto have made the mistake of being like way, way, way too wide and they try to cover everything in crypto and like, all right, there's NFTs popping up. Boom, we're going to go race and try to cover that. Mm-hmm. Like we are hyper focused on DeFi right now. Mm-hmm. And so each one of our anal- each of our analysts like just covers two or three or maybe four things. And what like coverage means is like they're in the discord, they're, in, they're on the governance forums, they know everyone at the, at, at the protocols. Uh, and, and because of that, we can give uh, hopefully a lot of alpha through the platform. So that's great. I'll get you access. If you're a, per- <laughs> if you're a permi holder, you, uh, you actually yeah. get it. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I'd love to check it out. Yeah. Cool. Um, I've, I've, a, I've a, I had a thought while reading about the Synapse chain, which is um, in CFI, all apps end up converging to become like a bank. So if you look at like, so no matter if you start with, a, you know, there's all these companies that start as custodians like Anchorage and BitGo and, and Copper and folks like that. Uh, then there's like BlockFi and well, you know, the, some of the borrow and lend platforms didn't, didn't end up making it too much, but like the BlockFi's of the world, then there's like Coinbase and Gemini. They all basically end up looking like a bank. Mm-hmm. In DeFi, it feels like everyone is building their own chains. Everyone's building, like Aave launched their own stable coin, Synapse, they started, like Aave starts as a borrow lend platform, they launched their own stable. Mm-hmm. Synapse starts as a bridge, now they're launching their own smart contract platform, they have their own AMM. It feels like everyone in DeFi is now starting to like, I don't know the right word. If CFI converges and everyone creates a bank, DeFi converges, everyone creates an ecosystem, a, a vertically integrated ecosystem. Decentralized I, I right stablecoin word. that eventually collapses. No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> you well, know, do you know what I'm saying, though? No, it, I, it feels I, do, like- I, I do. I do. It's sort of like this idea of like, um, it is common at times to be vertically integrated and or, or horizontally. Um, the thing, though, is it's hard to make the analogy, I think, because... Well, I'm going to say two things. One is in crypto, this idea of composability is really powerful because, you know, you have apps connecting and talking to each other in a very seamless kind of atomic way. You don't have that in web two. Like composability is like the eighth wonder of the world, if you will. Um, It sort of obliviates the need. 
the simple thesis for DeFi is if you look at what Plaid, this company that is, you know, trying to stitch together uh, financial applications. So your uh, one application that you have on your phone, your Bank of America app talks to another app like Venmo, if you will, and be able to do that seamlessly or seamlessly on the front end. And so they try to patch this kind of very disparate, convoluted, complex patchwork of financial applications and services that have been created since kind of the modern age, if you will, Web2, uh, with the internet and even preceding the internet, okay? It's very bare bones because it's like trying to patch together stuff that will never talk to something that is redesigned from scratch, from the bottom up. They just talk to each other seamlessly. Compo like the composability is what makes DeFi amazing and super powerful. Um, and it it's sort of like you don't need these kind of like connectors, if you will, that lose. there's a lot of friction still. Um, and so that's why DeFi is so powerful. But still, I just, you know, was talking to a company earlier, actually the one that you introduced me to. These guys saying, okay, listen, if you want to build and integrate with DeFi protocols, so say that you're a bank, which we, it will happen, right? If you're a financial institution, Robinhood or whatever, PayPal or what have you, and they want to integrate with DeFi, it's actually quite hard to plug into all these protocols because the documentation's not necessarily there. You know, if there's upgrades from Aave V2 to V3 or, or you know, whatever, it requires a lot of know-how and complexity to do that. And so that's what I mean by, like, you're still going to probably have these kind of, let's call them middleware solutions, connector solutions that, like, allow, you know, non-kind of Web3 native solutions or maybe front ends, like user aggregators, to, like, stitch together and connect to this very composable ecosystem because it's not necessarily easy for banks to do that or like some other application. So that's one idea. Um, the other thing is, and I, we've talked about this in prior gaming episodes, which is at the end of the day, maybe what is an interesting phenomenon happening is a lot of games will maybe roll out their entire suite of DeFi and L1. Like, like, Something like Steppen, for instance, is now the number one DEX in Solana. Why? Because it has all the users. Like, if you look at the, there's a great tweet, we'll link it in the show notes. But like, overnight, it, well, not overnight, but like, because Steppen has become a very popular app via number of users, it is just, it is naturally interesting if you're the team to say, why don't we just build our own kind of apps uh, and control the experience for the user and maybe even go out as far as creating an L1 because, hey, Solana keeps going down or it's not supporting us. So, you know, it keeps breaking, if you will. Like it's just a virtue of like the amount of demand. And so that's, I think, um, what is informing a lot of these kind of product choices of these teams that say, hey, listen, it's just, it's not, it's not kind of tailor-made. It's not fulfilling our needs. And so, um, let's go out and build a DEX or a lending protocol or a stable coin. And so, but I, I would say like, I'll, 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 the last thing I'll say on this is I don't think we're going to see the same level of kind of consolidation vertical or integration, vertical integration in web three generally, even though you've seen companies like, you know, um, Yuga labs try to do a lot, you know, they built the game and they're going to build other stuff. I still think that I'm still of the mind that there are, advantages of using a settlement layer like Ethereum, which is much farther along, much proven, much kind of benefits from what I 
do think is a network effect of an ecosystem of developers and applications that you can plug into seamlessly or you know through like evm compatibility i think that's a really good take um let's move on to another ecosystem announcement this week which was magic eden so mm-hmm. uh open is the biggest ethereum uh open is the biggest ethereum nft marketplace magic eden is the top solana nft marketplace they have 90 percent of solana's nft market share um, they announced that so so back in April, OpenSea integrated with Solana. Um, Magic Eden just announced that they're integrating with ETH. This uh, raises a really interesting question, which is like, are communities going to be c- continue to be loyal to their marketplaces? Is this a winner take all market? Um, Magic Eden obviously raised a, a big hundred thirty million dollar Series A about two months ago at a one point six billion dollar valuation. Um, this is probably comparable actually to OpenSea's. Series B, which was $100 million, uh, at a $1.5 billion valuation that they raised uh, exactly a year ago. So it feels like maybe Magic Eden is about 12 months behind OpenSea, but uh, there's there's some pretty interesting data I've been looking at that uh, is points in the direction of Magic Eden doing well, which is when you compare, when you look at marketplace businesses and like whether it's Airbnb or Uber or anything, eBay, the the most important metric is not actually the the GMV like the gross merchandising value. It's the uh, it's the transaction frequency because transaction frequencies build user habits. That's much more important to marketplaces than GMV. So I haven't I haven't looked at this data in a little bit, but like OpenSea has a much higher gross merchandising value, but Magic Eden has less users and two times and and, and more transactions, which means that users on Magic Eden are transacting like. I haven't, again, haven't looked at the data in a little while, but last time I looked, it was like four or five times as much as OpenSea users. And that that's the end goal of a marketplace. Would you say that, would you say that that uh, is because of like lower uh, transaction fees or mm-hmm. just the type of user that is using Solana is just more freak active or, or the value of what you're, or also a function of like a lot of the Solana NFTs are just in aggregate on average median whatever you want to see it is much lower than the, like the blue chip i, I think there's Ethereum. probably two things yeah i think there's probably two things which is like if you are in the solana ecosystem like you're probably a pretty active user of crypto in general like solana users are probably much more active than eth users uh, mm-hmm. for a number of reasons um and then i think also like the average price point of a magic eden nft is probably like one tenth Mm-hmm. Or one twentieth of the average price of an OpenSea NFT, uh, I, I would guess, and so I think this leads to higher frequency of purchases, which which then obviously leads to greater user retention, which means more opportunities to step into value uh, for like other other areas, right? That the marketplace can build. And I think it was Lee Jin put this; uh, she explained this really well, which helped define my thinking on this. Which is like, so Uber, like Uber is a big marketplace for car connecting cars and people, obviously for transportation. Uber starts as Uber Black. Then they expand to Uber X. Then they expand to Uber Eats and other product lines. It's like you're basically just as a marketplace ramping uh, the the frequency of transaction within the marketplace. So, yeah, yeah. We'll keep an eye on data on uh, Magic Eden versus OpenSea. Anything else, Santi? Any other? Uh... Oh, here's here's another one. I don't have much commentary on it. Michael Saylor stepping down mm-hmm. from CEO as at MicroStrategy uh, takes on a new post as exec chairman. Uh, I mean, just reviewing the data they own 130,000 bitcoin uh they bought it at an average price of 30k 
Uh, Bitcoin sitting at 23K right now. So they, what is the, uh, you want to help me do some mental math here? 2 billion. Mm -hmm. They've got like 2 billion Bitcoin. They bought it for like 3 billion. Yeah. No, they've got 3 billion. They bought it at 4 billion, I think is my mental math. So they're down like a billion on <laughs> on the Bitcoin trade. That's all I got for MicroStrategy. Um, I guess other news, we'll keep running through this. Uh, SEC charged Vorsage founders, promoters uh, in $300 million crypto Ponzi scheme. The uh, CBOE reported a $460 million write down on the ARISX transaction. Um, crypto backed SPACs, uh, or excuse me, PACs uh, are starting to ramp up spending um, for the primaries. And uh, yeah, I think that's the news of the week. Yeah. Um, there are some other interesting some interesting news that we don't have to all cover here, but uh, uh, like the CFTC came out saying like they're going to, the regulation of like Bitcoin and Ethereum will squarely fall into their domain. There's been interesting, like we're going to have a great episode on regulation with uh, uh, Rebecca and Jake um, around around these type of topics. So we'll save discussion for then, but there's some really interesting developments. Uh, it feels to me like there's a higher cadence of like, discussion among regulatory bodies in the u.s which to me feels like there's a maturation of like properly kind of understanding these and then regulating these stablecoin kind of act and bill and i think all of these things ultimately will be net positive irrespective of kind of the resolution uh, i think um, the regulators understand that it is the next very interesting arc of innovation and they don't want to like necessarily just create something that totally shuts down the space um, and so, uh, there's a lot of development and interesting kind of things that I will foresee will happen over the next six, 12 months, um, that it's just interesting to pay attention to. And is is a narrative that we'll continue to track closely in the, in the pod and bring on guests that can more eloquently talk about it. What else? There was another, um, there was another interesting, did we cover Coinbase? I mean, obviously the, the stock is up like a ton, but, uh, you know, they, they were chosen by BlackRock. Did we cover that? Should we cover that? I can give the I can give the overview here, which mm -hmm. is that uh, there's big news from the kind of institutional crypto world today. Uh, Coinbase announced they're partnering with BlackRock. BlackRock is obviously the largest asset manager in the entire world. Uh, TLDR on the on the partnership. Institutional clients of Aladdin. Aladdin is BlackRock's investment management platform. Uh, institutional clients of Aladdin now have direct access to crypto trading, crypto custody, crypto prime brokerage, and crypto reporting through a direct integration with Coinbase Prime. I think users. Uh, have to be clients of both Coinbase and Aladdin. But I mean, this is this is a huge deal, I would say, mm -hmm. for Coinbase. Um, this is really helpful for, I mean, this is an amazing integration for uh, clients of, uh, of, of, of BlackRock and of Aladdin. Like, it's pretty frustrating if you're a private client of someone like, let's say the two big ones, like Goldman or JP Morgan. Like, if you are a private client right now of, of someone like Goldman, you can't, hold your crypto with with Goldman. Uh, you can allocate to on their on their platform to different funds. Um, but you can't actually hold your crypto. Uh, you can't trade crypto. You mm -hmm. can't. Uh, so there's a lot of there, uh, there are a lot of folks who made a lot of money in crypto. They they don't want to bank at like their their use their checking account that they used when they were, you know, uh, in college or something. They want to go be a private client of like a Goldman or JP Morgan. But most of their wealth is in crypto. So they mm -hmm. can't actually yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, th th this really that. sets us up for more interesting products like being able to use crypto as collateral for yeah. a number of other things. Um, and and it's not just BlackRock. I mean, obviously, BlackRock is the largest. It? it is the largest 
um, yeah, it is. money manager in the world, uh, 10 trillion. What, 10 trillion, right? It's, yeah. it's, it's, and the setup there is uh, explosive, I think. Um, especially not, the, the, the key things are the custody of it. It's like the full suite of Coinbase um, that they've already developed. I think that's their biggest moat. Call it what it is, whether margins are down, you don't agree with the management team or the, it, they do have this kind of moat of having built like an end-to-end suite of solutions that an institution like BlackRock is probably going to go and use them versus someone else. Um, there was also an interesting development that happened in Europe. Uh, BNP Paribas, which is, if not the largest, one of the largest banks in France, also similarly is now going to allow their private clients to um, you know, support them like you know, uh, allocating to, to crypto. And uh, by allocation, I mean like being able to like from their platform, you log in, you buy it and like you, you see it in your statement, like it's there. I, you know, and they're, I, I don't think they're, I'm not sure who they're using on the back end, uh, but it's, it's um, like from a custodial standpoint and what have you. But uh, yeah, these are some of the headlines that kind of go unnoticed in, in during these markets. Uh, you know, most so people- funny, this, coin, this Coinbase announcement, if it was a bull market, it is plastered all over crypto Twitter. It's like mm-hmm. front page news. It's like just quietly goes goes by in a bear market. Yeah, you know. Um, yeah. So I think uh, you know, speaking around that, uh, which I think just to tie nicely kind of the episode is we had uh, the head of research at ARC uh, come on. Uh, last week and I think he's a you know these guys are in my opinion one of the best research shops out there and yeah you know they they traded out of Coinbase which they've held for quite a bit of time um was it two weeks ago week and a half ago yeah. I think July yeah. 27th they kind of punched out um and now you know obviously you know the the stock's up a ton now 80 70 100 percent depending on where things are, it probably moved quite a bit during this recording. Um, so you're left wondering, like, again, um, we didn't ask them much, but like, why did they punch out of it? And, you know, a lot of people are obviously saying, well, you, you literally took like the bottom. And this is why it's so hard to think on. I, I don't know what their thesis or their, if it was like a forced selling situation, they had to just, I don't know the particulars, but what I'm trying to say is, I think um, it's important to kind of appreciate and go back to the, the original thesis of why Coinbase is valuable, why I think it's valuable, and the moats that it has, and just from first principles, like, should this business be worth X, and it's trading out Y? Um, yeah. It's interesting, because I think Coinbase and MicroStrategy, both, will, will tell you the sentiment around crypto and how far how far that pendulum is swinging from, you know... Howard Marks is a great quote, and I keep going with Howard Marks because I think he's one of the best investors, um, which is like the business, the real world deviates and kind of here. The market is you add the psychological component and humans not being very rational species deviates like this. And so it's like how fundamentals really changed. And so on the margin, yeah, maybe, right? Uh, how much of it's priced in We're super hard to understand. But at least you can like point to saying, okay, this business has X amount of cash on their balance sheet. It's generating Y, unless I fundamentally think that's going to totally go away. And it's trading at this P multiple, which is like below distressed steel mills. <laughs> <laughs> Should this, what is still a technology business that is 
you know, synonymous with crypto and one of the largest markets in the world, should it be trading at close to book value or, you know, like a P ratio of like six or seven or four? Well, maybe not. And yeah. so, yeah, you know, it, it just is a reminder that you can, they're very smart people looking at these things and, and even them, you know, it's, 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 it's really hard to time the, time the market, but uh, yeah, it's, an, I, I look at Coinbase and MicroStrategy as like very clear barometers of, of general sentiment towards the asset class. Um, and, and, you know, I think it was like, again, have we bought them? I don't know, but like there was a while there where Coinbase was trading at like pretty distress <laughs> levels. Yeah. So it was, yeah. I, I don't know, you could argue it still is, uh, but you know, you guys should go out and do the work. Do the work. All right, Santi, good app. You excited for New York, my friend? Uh, very much so. Uh, assuming as I am flying through Heathrow, I believe. And so, Oh, Ooh, that's a bad call. <laughs> bad, very bad call. Hey, listen, uh, you know, uh, it is what it is. I will just, uh, uh, I'm excited to go uh, and, and meet up with some folks out there. Uh, we didn't cover it, but as a punk holder, I, I will say it will be interesting to see this. Tiffany, uh, I, uh, we'll, yeah. well, let's just end it with this. Tiffany and Arnaud, I think uh, one of the sons of Bernard um, um, is, you know, has a board ape, I think, has his profile picture. And he's been, you know, very much Alexander, in the frontier of, of being pro Web3 and yeah. And I think developing a strategy for the suite of luxury brands, whether it's Tag, the watchmaker, or, or Tiffany, the jeweler, or some of the other ones, right? And so in this case, Tiffany unveiled that it was doing 250 uh, pendants. Uh, so if you have a punk, you some there are some folks that were whitelisted, others that are just going to try to buy it up to, you know, there's 250 um, NFTs, and you can redeem the NFT and get a custom, like, pendant with some, like, rare gemstones if you will uh, of the punk itself but you can only claim it within the first i think like couple weeks or like months uh it's not like you can wait forever um so yeah it's interesting from um you know i think it will pave the way and show other luxury brands why web3 is so important because i think lvmh as a conglomerate is by far in fact it's my top three if i could just own one stock and I don't typically own stocks other than private companies going public in my portfolio. Um, it would be probably LVMH because humans always want to differentiate. And I think they, they're the way they've kind of gone after and developed this luxury conglomerate across multiple categories is very yeah. impressive. So you're left wondering who's next within their portfolio of LVMH brands. Um, you know, especially in the backdrop when a lot of sales, they've been hit hard with, you know, the U.S. dollarizing, if you're like a luxury brand based in the U.S. and or Russia, all of a sudden, like certain brands like Dolce & Gabbana and like that, like we're deriving like 30, 40, 50 percent of the revenue from Russia. Well, guess what? That just went to zero. And China for a while has been like clamping down on like anti-corruption practices. And so like that also has put pressure on these brands. And so what's next? They always wonder, like, what's next? What's yeah. the next? How do you appeal to a, a younger demographic and capture growth? Well, uh, I don't know, maybe <laughs> do what uh, Tiffany is doing. So I think it's a very interesting experiment, whether you like it or not, whether you like the pendants or not. Uh, I personally probably will not be shelling out 30 ETH because I um, I don't have a significant other and I'm not much into pendants. Um, but uh, <laughs> but they, they look pretty cool. I mean, I, I guess nice. yeah. I will say the only thing that I was thinking was, oh, let me go out and buy a bunch of female punks. Because then I think like, I don't know, like, look, it, 
It's like a man. It's like a satchel. You remember that scene in the in the Hangover, which is like he's wearing like a man bag, and there's this whole discussion about what what it is. And I think they look. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. If you want to use man bag, satchel, whatever you want to call it, great. But I'm just not a pendant guy, so I always buy for personal consumption, and this is not something that I, at this point in my life, uh, see myself uh, just wearing. I'm I'm with you. I mean, this is a yeah. I mean, shout out to Louis Vuitton and LVMH. Like, first off, Bernard. Arnaud, the French billionaire who dude's worth 168 billion. They own LVMH owns Dior, Fendi, Marc Jacobs. What is it? Uh, Celine, Sephora, Tag Heuer, all the liquor, Tiffany. like all the, some of the best liquor brands out there. Yeah, and like just they they uh, I think they're behind El Catterdin, like the amazing investment mm-hmm. firm. Um, he put I, the reason I think this deal went down is he put his son Alexander, 28 year old, mm-hmm. in in charge of Tiffany. So it's no wonder mm-hmm. that like Tiffany is doing this. Uh, shout out to, I pinged Alexander. See if we can bring him on the podcast. Yeah, next time. yeah. Santi, be well. I'm excited to see you soon in New York. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. Uh, thanks everyone for listening. Um, and hope, uh, hope, you know, stay safe out there. Uh, and uh, we'll be back next week. See you next time.